Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 to 21. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let's pray. My Father, I thank you for sustaining Aaron as he led us in worship this morning with a a broken voice and not feeling too well this morning. I couldn't even tell that he didn't feel well. And I pray that you would sustain me now. My voice is weak, but you are strong. You raise the dead, Lord Jesus, and so you can help me to speak for the next 40 minutes to the glory of your name. And I pray that you would do that. Oh, how I pray that you would glorify your name this morning. Display weakness in every one of us today that your strength might be made more perfect, and that your glory might be shown. Oh, how we love you. And oh, how I pray that something of the importance and urgency of the words that we'll be studying today will land on us today. Father, I can say the words, but only you can cause the seriousness and the opportunity and the joy of these things to land upon us. And I pray that you would do that. I pray that you would honor your word now by ministering through the Holy Spirit to every single one of us in this room this morning, Lord. Come now, strengthen me, glorify your name, and build up your church. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our Savior, our Redeemer and our friend. In the great name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. In my view, Ephesians chapter 5... 15 through 21, gives body and shape to the commands in verses 8 through 12, namely, that we who are in Christ ought to walk in the light and walk as children of light, and that we ought not to walk in the darkness, but instead expose it. And specifically, what I see Paul doing in Ephesians 5, 15 to 21, is giving us four specific bits of advice as to what it means to walk in the light. And all of these bits of advice just seem so much more significant and so much more urgent to me in light of the death of my brother. And so let me summarize them for you now. First in verse 15, we ought to look carefully how we walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Beloved, once we have crossed that river of death, there's no coming back. There's no second chance. You either have lived as unwise or you have lived as wise. And you will receive your just recompense from the Lord. And so, how I pray that we will heed this word. And how I pray that every single person at glory of Christ will be found to be a wise person. And not to be an unwise person. Number two, in verse 16. We ought to make the best use of the time because the days are evil. And also, as you know as well as I do, the days are very short. Before we know it, our lives will come to an end. Just like that, it will be over. And we will have to face our Maker and answer for our lives. And so, again, how I pray with all of my heart that we will heed this word 
and look carefully how we walk and also that we will make best use of the time, redeeming every single second that the Lord Jesus Christ gives us for the glory of his name. Number three, in verse 17, we ought not to be foolish, but rather understand what the will of the Lord is. And finally, in verse 18, we ought not to be drunk with wine, but rather be filled with the Holy Spirit. Last week, we looked at the first two bits of this advice, and today it is our task and our privilege to look at the third, namely that we ought not to be foolish, but rather understand what the will of the Lord is. And the first thing that I want to lay out before us this morning is that in this command is contained a great promise and a hope-producing promise, specifically that God's will can be discerned, it can be understood, and it can be done. God has not hidden Himself from us, God has not hidden His will from us, and God has not made it impossible for us to obey Him, and that ought to strike us as really good news. Bertrand Russell was a famous atheist in the last century, and he once said that if he were to meet God, someone asked him, you're such a famous and convinced atheist, what will you do if you meet God? And he said, well, I will ask him, sir, why did you take such pains to hide yourself? I don't know what God will say to Dr. Russell, but I suppose God might say something like, sir, I did not hide myself. I put myself out in such plain sight to see that only the fool could say, there is no God. And I put my will out in such plain sight for everyone to see that only the fool could say, I couldn't find it and I could not do it. As God said to Moses so many centuries ago in Deuteronomy 30 verses 11 through 14, for this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it down to us that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you. And just how near? It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. Beloved, when the Bible commands those of us who are in Christ to understand the will of God and by implication do the will of God, I hope you hear with all your hearts that the will of God is discernible, it's comprehensible, and it's doable. God is not playing hide-and-go-seek with you. He has put himself right out in plain sight to see. Now, I'm not saying that this is automatic. I'm not saying that it's always easy to discern the will of God in each and every situation. If I said that, I'd be a fool, number one, and I'd also be a hypocrite because there are times in my life where I wonder, what in the world are you doing, God? And I'm not sure exactly what He wants. So there are times. I'm not always saying, I'm not saying that it's always easy, but I am saying that the Bible says that His will is discernible and comprehensible and doable, and how I pray that that will strike you as good news. As I said, He's not playing hide-and-go-seek with us. Amen? He's put Himself out there for us to know and to follow. And so, it is no unbearable burden for Paul to say, do not be foolish. Do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. In the original language of the New Testament, which most of you know is Greek, the word foolish literally means to be without reason. But more broadly, it means to lack common sense or not to employ one's understanding, particularly in practical matters. 
and I love this broader definition because it implies that each and every one of us possess all the faculties that we need for reflection and discernment and application and obedience. But the foolish, here's what they do. It's not that they can't do it. What they do is they either refuse or neglect to employ what God has given them. The foolish are either hard-hearted and they stiff-arm God and His will and His ways by refusing to pursue them, or they're lazy and they neglect God by simply not applying themselves and using the God-given faculties that they have to discern His will and His ways and in fact do them. Luke 12, uh, 13, you might want to turn there with me because I'm going to read uh, several verses We'll look at Luke twelve thirteen to 21. It is just such a great example of the first kind of fool. The one who refuses to pursue the will and the ways of God and then is found to be precisely what he is. Luke chapter 12, beginning in thir- verse 13. Jesus said, or someone said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man... Who made me a judge or an arbiter over you? I can almost hear the Lord saying, What am I, a lawyer? Why are you asking me to settle this for you? And he said to them all. So now he's turned his attention, not just to the man, but now he's talking to everybody, which by implication would include us. Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool. This night your soul is required of you, and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? And now here to my mind is the key sentence. This is the crucially important sentence. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Here's one way that we could summarize what Jesus is saying. The heart of wisdom is being rich toward God. The heart of foolishness is being rich toward the self. The heart of wisdom is living for the glory of God. And the heart of foolishness, no matter what it looks like on the outside, peel it all back and get to its heart, it's living for the glory of the self. The heart of wisdom is to live for the fame of God and the delight of God and delighting in the ways of God, even in the face of suffering, even in the face of death. But the foolish lives for himself and delights in himself and delights to fulfill his own pleasures and live a hedonistic lifestyle. And so it is that Paul says with us, to us, with great conviction in his heart, I don't think he's being tepid here when he writes these words, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. In other words, live your life Godward. Don't live like the man in Luke 12. Live your life Godward. And I pray with all of my heart that we will hear this word today because, friends, Hebrews 9.27 is as serious as it gets. And here's how that goes. It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. After we die, 
Every single one of us will face God Almighty and we will account for our lives. And I promise you, with all of my heart, I promise you, you do not want to hear Jesus saying to you, Luke 12, 20. You do not want to hear that. Fool! This night your soul is required of you. And what has become of all your possessions? Or all your sowing into your flesh? What has become of it? You're a fool! You do not, and I do not, want to hear Jesus Christ say that. And so, how I pray again with all of my heart that we will heed Paul's word and not be foolish. This is not religious language just designed for church services like this or when we're hanging out with Christian people. This is ultimate reality. And this is as serious as serious gets. And so how I pray that we will prepare our souls to meet Jesus Christ by simply heeding the word that we're reading today. Do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Now let's talk about that word understand for a second. That word literally means, I love the meaning of this word in Greek, it means to bring things together. It means to labor to bring them together. And then a little bit more practically, it means to perceive something clearly or to employ your capacities for understanding and thus to arrive at insight. So in other words, this word understanding, when Paul says understand the will of the Lord, what he's saying is engage in that mental labor that lets you bring everything together, that lets you put everything into perspective, that lets you see things as they are. Come into understanding by engaging in the labor of understanding. And I'm sure you can hear, I've said it several times, that seeking understanding is labor. It's work. It does not come automatically. It doesn't just come because we want it to come. It comes because we apply the God-given means that He has given to each and every one of us to seek and to discern the will of God. It comes because we take the time to read the Word of God, meditate on it, think about it, apply it to our lives. It comes because we pray and ask God to help us understand the Word of God. And we ask Him to help us apply the Word of God to lots of situations. And even many situations that the Bible doesn't address, right? Like if you're going to go buy a car, the Bible doesn't tell you which car you should buy or if you should even buy a car. But are there principles in the Word of God that could train your mind so much that you could actually discern what God's will is for your purchase of a vehicle? We need to do this. We need to seek the counsel of others in Christ who are wiser than us or who are seeking Christ with the same kind of passion that we have and asking them what they think about this or that situation. Some of you right now are straining in your lives to know the will of God for your situation and you're frustrated because you can't figure out what it is that God wants for your situation. It could be, there are other possibilities than this, but it could be that you're simply not employing the God-given means that He has given to you to discern what His will is in your situation. And yet, you are expecting God to manifest Himself in some way. But it doesn't work like that. Beloved, God has given us a process by which we can actually discern His will. Next week, I plan to give the whole sermon to that. I'm going to talk for 40 minutes about how we can strive together, and I mean together because I don't think you always discern God's will off in the woods with you and Jesus and a Bible. I think this is a together thing. And there are ways. God has given us ways to discern His will. And we'll talk about that at length next week because 
I have a lot more to say about it than I can say right now. But for this morning, let me just say this. If you want to know the will of God, then you must labor for it. And the main way that you labor for it is through the Word of God and through prayer and through counsel with others. And so, even though I have a lot more to say to you about that, I just want to leave you with that for now. Because you might not be able to wait seven days. So if you can't wait seven days, give yourselves to the Word, to prayer, and to counsel. And pray that God will accomplish His Word and let you know His will. Romans 12, 1 and 2 is a very familiar text, but it's very helpful and appropriate right now. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And I'm not sure how else that happens except by the Word of God. As the Word of God saturates my brain and retrains it to think as God thinks, rather than as I think or as the world thinks. And then when we do that, here's the promise. That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So much more to be said, but I'm going to have to leave that for next week. And for now, once more say, go to the Word, go to prayer, go to wise counsel, and I will pray for you that God will make His will known to you. For now, for the rest of our time this morning, I want to address a more fundamental question. It's important that we get our minds around this. What does the Bible mean by this term, the will of God? It's very important that we answer this question well, because the Bible uses the term in more than one way. And there's some that divide it up all kinds of ways. This morning I'm just going to talk about two main ways, and there may only be two ways. And please try to follow me as carefully as you can, because this is not theological hair-splitting. This is a really important distinction that we have to make that I think, without making this distinction, you cannot make sense of the Bible. In fact, I don't think you can make sense of God without thinking carefully about this. So let me start by very quickly defining the word will, and then I'll make this distinction at some length. The Greek word for will just means probably what it means in, in English. It means one's design or intent or purpose. And therefore, the phrase, the will of God, simply means the design or the intent or the purpose of God. That's easy to get, easy to grasp. It's not a big mystery what this phrase means, the will of God. It simply means His design, His intent, His purpose. And the command for us is to understand that in all of our life situations. Where the difficulty comes is in grappling with the fact that God wills things He also abhors. And in fact, even condemns and commands that we not do. He wills those things. God causes things to come about that He then justly condemns. And you just have to find categories to grapple with that. Because if you don't, as I said, I don't think there's any way to make sense of God or of the Bible. The ultimate example of this is Jesus Christ suffering on the cross. The reason Jesus endured such horrific suffering and death on a cross was not because the Jews killed Him, or not because the Romans killed Him, or not because we all, by virtue of our sins, killed Him, but rather because it was the will of the Father to crush Him. Will you turn with me, please, to Isaiah 53? We're going to look at ten verses there. some ways I wish we could spend a couple weeks on this because this is just so rich. But I'm just going to basically read this and move on. 
point I want you to see in here is that God the Father is the one who willed to crush Jesus. Starting in verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by whom? Smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. And the implication is not his own. He was crushed for our iniquities. And again, not his own. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, He was taken away, and for his generation, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked, and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. And now here is the crescendo. Verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Jesus was crushed because it was the will of the Father to crush him. God ordained the whole entire process, and he also ordained every single detail and every single aspect of the promise. Nothing escaped God. He planned it all. I did not say he allowed it to happen. I said he planned it. He ordained it. He did it. He made it come to pass. You don't have to turn there with me because it's short, but please look up at Acts 2, 22-23. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. In one sense, it's right to say that the Jews crucified Christ, or at least betrayed Him so that He would be crucified. In one sense, it's right to say that the Romans crucified Christ. They did lead Him out to Golgotha and nail Him and hang Him up there. And in a sense, it is right to say that our sins crucified Christ. Because he did die to make atonement for our sins for the glory of his Father. But friends, ultimately, ultimately, you must see God did this. It was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God that all these things happened in every detail along the way. And now we're ready to see the problem. God planned for Judas to betray Jesus. 
God planned for the Jews to hand Jesus over to the Romans. God planned for the Roman government to crucify a man that they knew was innocent. What did Pilate do? He washed his hands and said, This man is innocent. I am not guilty. God planned for the soldiers to flog him and mock him and pull out his beard and spit in his face and place upon him a a painful crown of thorns and nail him to the wood and hang the Lord of glory in a place where common criminals died. God planned for them to pierce his side and then to divide his garments among themselves. God planned all of it. And yet every single action that I have just mentioned was egregious, horrid, infinitely condemnable sin. And God will hold every single person accountable for what they did in the death of Jesus Christ. Now how are you going to make sense of that? God made it happen and then condemns people for what He caused to happen. How are we to reconcile these twin facts, as it were? Well, for many centuries now, Christian thinkers have thoughtfully solved this dilemma by making a a distinction between two ways in which this phrase, the will of God, is used. And here are three ways that you could say the distinction, but they're all the same distinction said in three different ways. On one hand is the sovereign will of God, the other is the permissive will of God. On the one hand, you could say, is the hidden will of God, and the other hand is the revealed will of God. Or as I heard John Piper say in a sermon some time ago, on the one hand is God's will of decree, and on the other hand is God's will of command. Again, same distinction, three ways of saying it. I'm going to use the terms God's will of decree and God's will of command. God's will of decree refers to God's ultimate control over everything that comes to pass, even things that He abhors and He grieves over and He condemns and forbids. A.W. Pink was an early 20th century pastor and scholar, and here's how he defined the will of decree, which he called the sovereign will. It is his eternal, unchanging purpose concerning all things that he has made to be brought about by certain means to their appointed ends. And this, this way of using the phrase the will of God, as you can imagine, is very well attested in the Bible. It's all over the place. Let me just point you to five scriptures. Isaiah, and the reason I want to do five and not two is because I want you to see this is all over the place. I could go to a hundred. I want you to see this is well attested. And I want you to grapple with the fact that every single thing that happens in your life, even things that appear to be greatly evil, God is sovereign over those things. Isaiah 46, 8 to 11. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. That is the sovereign will of God. He has purposes. No one can thwart him. Daniel 4.25, speaking to King Nebuchadnezzar, the Lord says to him, You shall be driven from among your men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. 
You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time will pass over you, and here's the key, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will. When his period of insanity was over, here's how King Nebuchadnezzar summarized everything in verses 34 to 35. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored Him who lives forever, for His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And then here for our purposes is the key. And He does according to His will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can say to Him or stay His hand, I'm sorry, none can stay His hand or say to Him, what have you done? So again, there is the sovereign will of God. Who will oppose Him when He purposes to do something? Ephesians 1.11 In Him, that is Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him, who works all things according to the counsel of His will. All things. I see no open door for that to disclude anything. When it says all things, it means all things. Jesus Christ, God the Father, works everything out according to the counsel of His own will. This is His will of decree. And finally, there is that great and absolutely inescapable passage in Romans 9. We really should read the whole chapter, but let's look at Romans 9, 15 to 20. By the way, this was the passage that converted me into being a Calvinist because I just saw, I spent weeks trying to work my way around this text. There's not a way to work around this text. God is absolutely sovereign over everything. For He, God, says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Please notice with me that Paul does not answer his rhetorical question by saying that God's will can indeed be resisted. Notice that. His answer could not be more strongly the opposite. Everything in Paul is rising up to say, no one can resist the sovereign will of God. God's will of decree will come to pass, and no one will stop Him. As Isaiah said, I have spoken, I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. And tell me, who will stand and oppose the Lord? Who will thwart God from accomplishing His purposes? The Bible's answer, no one. No one. There is a sense in which God wills everything to happen, including things that God Himself abhors 
including things that he condemns. Now let's talk a little bit about his will of command, and then we'll try to reconcile these two things. God's will of command refers to that moral aspect of God's will that he has made clear to us and that he has made incumbent upon us through direct instruction. Here again is how A.W. Pink summarized this version of God's will. God's revealed will is the definer of our duty and the standard of our responsibility. And I just think this next sentence is a really good one. The primary and basic reason why I should follow a certain course or do a certain thing is because it's God's will that I should, His will being clearly defined for me in His Word. I'm just going to give you two examples of this, but again, all over the Bible you'll find things like this. First Thessalonians 4.3 says, For this is the will of God. Don't you love it when the Bible just says it that plainly? Here's the will of God. It doesn't even take much labor. Here it is. Your sanctification that you should abstain from sexual immorality. God could not be more clear with us than he is in this text. God is saying that all human beings, and especially those who are in Christ, are to avoid sexual immorality. So this is his will, right? We're clear about this. This is God's will. And we've just spent ten minutes saying that God's will cannot be thwarted. But you will agree with me. Every single day, Christians in the body of Christ at large, and, and, and probably, I hope not, but probably even in this church, break this command every single day. Every single day. How do you explain that? God's will cannot be thwarted, and yet every day God's will is thwarted. So in one sense, we see that God has created a situation where He permits His will to be broken, and that word permits is why some people call this the permissive will of God. Just one more quick example. 1 Peter 2.15 For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. The design of God is that believers are to shut the mouths of unbelievers, especially mocking unbelievers, by doing good things so that you remove all their accusations from their mouths. They can accuse you, but nothing will stick because none of it's true. And so we're supposed to Remove the possibility of an accusation that sticks by the good things that we do and the good things that we say. But you'll agree with me. And, and, and I'm the first one to admit that I break this command every single day of my life. Every single day of my life, I find myself doing things opposite of what the will of God is for me. And I find myself giving unbelievers reasons to justly condemn the name and to condemn my faith in Jesus Christ as well. So again, there is a sense in which God allows His will to be permitted. God permits His will to be broken. And I hope you feel this tension with me. All these texts we just read. God's will cannot be broken. And here we see clearly, in two places out of a hundred we could have gone to, God's will is broken every single day. So how do we reconcile this? How do we do it? Here's my best shot. In the sovereign will of God over all things, He has thought it good and wise to let some of His commands be broken. So I hope I'm being clear. In the sovereign will of God over all things, one thing He has willed is that some of His commands, some of His will may be broken. He has designed it that way. And though I am far from understanding all the reasons for this, I think the main reason is in Romans 
uh, chapter 11, verse 32. Please turn there with me. This will be the last text we look at this morning. Romans eleven thirty two, I think, gives the main reason why God has created a universe where His unbreakable will has determined that some of His commands might be broken. For God has consigned all to disobedience that He may have mercy on all. Let me just point out quickly, the word all does not mean every single human being. Paul's been talking for three chapters about the Jews and the Gentiles. And so when he says all, he means God has consigned both Jews and Gentiles to disobedience that he might have mercy on both the Jews and the Gentiles. Now, more important for our purpose here, that word consigned, it literally means caused. That word means caused. So it could read like this, for God has caused all to be disobedient that he might have mercy on all. God, in His sovereign will, has caused everyone to fall into disobedience by breaking His will. And the question is, why? Why did God do that? And I think that the biblical answer is, because God determined that that kind of world more excellently displayed His glory for all to see than another world otherwise would have done. You don't have to turn there, but Ephesians 2.7 just says this explicitly. It says that the reason God allowed us to fall into death and into the trap of the devil and then poured His mercy out upon us in Christ was so that, in verse 7, He might display in the coming ages the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ. So please follow me here. God has created a situation. He has determined with His great unbreakable sovereign will that some of His commands might be broken Because through that whole process, He deemed it best to display His glory for all to see. And this is the ultimate meaning of reality. The reason you have existence today, the reason the sun is shining today, the reason Jesus is upholding everything in the universe today, is for the display of the glory of God and our joy in that display. This is ultimate reality. Now, what was Paul's reaction to that? Did Paul begrudge God? Did Paul blame God for allowing evil things to exist that he might display his own glory? So the contrary. Look with me at verse 33 and just watch this explosion of worship that comes out of the heart of Paul. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. How inscrutable are His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor? Or who has given Him a gift that He might be repaid. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Paul's response to everything we've been talking about today was to worship God for His unaccusable wisdom and His perfect righteousness. We may not understand the ways of God There will always be a sense of mystery to these things that we've talked about today. But oh, how I pray that we will be like Paul, friends. And when we think about these things, meditate on these things, let them sink into our minds and our hearts and in our manner of living, how I pray that we will worship God in the way that Paul worshiped God because he is worthy of that kind of worship. And one day, every single knee 
will bow. And every single tongue will confess that God is wise, that God is good, that God is holy. And it was right for him to create the world in the way that he in fact created the world. Now let me very quickly close this out and just answer one question in about two sentences. When Paul commands us to understand the will of God, what is he commanding us to understand in Ephesians 5.17? Do not be foolish, but understand the will of God. Does he mean that we should seek to understand the sovereign, hidden will of God that is God's will of decree, his eternal purposes? Or is he saying we should understand his revealed, permissive will of command? What is he after with us? And I think it's pretty clear from the context that what he's asking us to discern is God's will of command, which is great news, because being given the task to understand God's will of decree would be very, very, very difficult. In verse 3, Paul said that we who are in Christ should not be giving ourselves to sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness. And then in verse 12, he said that we are to take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but expose them. So then when we get to verse 17 and he says, understand the will of God, I think it's pretty clear that he means understand the difference between darkness and light, sin and righteousness, and walk in the light. Walk in the light. Do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and by the grace of Christ, walk in the light. Next week, Lord willing, we'll talk at some length about the disciplines by which we can discern God's will. But for now, I just want to encourage us to use our common sense as children of light and to strive to understand the will of God by the word and by prayer and by counsel and then to do it, brothers and sisters. When Paul says understand, he doesn't mean develop the capacity to write a paper about it. He means live in it, walk in it, breathe in it, do it. And so I pray that we'll do that. The time is exceedingly short for us, beloved. Last Tuesday, my brother was folding his laundry, and then he sat down in a chair and had a seizure, and he was gone. He was just gone. And our time is short. We don't know if we even have the rest of this day left to live, right? We don't know that. We cannot presume on that. God is being exceedingly merciful to us right this second by allowing us to have life right now. And so the time is short. Let's not play games with this. Do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Amen? And let's help each other in this. Let's pray. Our Father, I am just so deeply grateful to you for your word and for the wisdom that you pour out before us. Your word really is a lamp to the feet and a light to the path. That's not just a metaphor. There is reality there. When we read it, when we seek to understand it, and when we obey it by your power, oh, how our lives go in the direction that they should. And so I pray, Father, that for the glory of your name and the good of other people and the joy of our souls, that we would heed this word today. Help none of us to be foolish, but to strive to understand what the will of the Lord is. And then I pray for power to do it, Father. I pray for that power and for that grace and for that mercy. How we love you, Father, for giving us today all that you have already given us. You have already gone far beyond anything that we deserve, and we thank you for it. We now pray for this extra mercy that you would help us to discern and do your will. Again, I pray to the glory of your name. And it is in your great name that we pray. Amen.